0: or smartphone, tablet, something you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 3. We started 1 Corinthians uh, just a few weeks back, and we'll be spending the rest of the summer um, just into the fall walking through this book, this letter um, that Paul has written. Uh, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians to the church that's in Corinth. He's writing it from Ephesus. He had spent about 18 months in Corinth. Um, and so, we, it's one of the longer periods he spends with, with one of the local churches, and it's about three years after that. Corinth is a city that has been set up um, as a, by Rome. So, it had been destroyed by Rome, and then was reinstituted by Rome. And so, it's a Greek city um, in a Greek location, but has a very heavily Roman influence, and it's a, a really powerful trade city. It was sitting on an isthmus, and so it had a port on each side. Um, at that point, it's only four and a half miles across, and so guys who were, were trading on, and their ships, they would actually drag their boats across that four and a half miles. They had built a road to do that, um, rather than having to sail around some more dangerous waters. And so like a port city, like a trade city, it was um, it had done really well financially, and when places do well financially, it draws folks from all over the world. And so folks from all across the world had come, from different cultures, different religious backgrounds, different philosophical backgrounds, and it was a city because it had been founded, destroyed, and now refounded, and a lot of freedmen, former slaves, had been sitting there, and for the first time, they had a chance to actually advance, to do what they wanted, to gain their own independence, to gain their own wealth, to gain their own power, their own authority, and so it was a city of just kind of rugged individualism, right? We get this in West Texas, right? Like we get just, I, I'm going to make my way. That's what Corinth was like. And so Paul is now writing back, and he, he Scripture lets us know of at least four letters he writes to the church in Corinth. Um, this is the second one. We don't actually have the first one, um, but in, in 1 Corinthians 5, we see that he references a previous letter. And so he's writing back to these people that he knows, this church that he knows, these people that he loves, and he's helping them work through some, some different issues and things that are going on. The fact is is what we've seen so far in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, is that some factions, some divisions have emerged in the church, and that people are using their status, they're using the, the, the minister, the preacher they like best, and they're kind of dividing along these lines and going, our guy's better than your guy, because our guy's more eloquent, or our guy's wiser, or our guy, whatever way, they're, they're holding that up, because in Corinth, Um, There were a lot of teachers, a lot of philosophers, and it was a very lavish, pompous type thing. And so what Paul is saying is, look, I know you don't think much of me, right? You don't think much of me. Because I came in simple ways, in simple terms, and I preached the the gospel and Christ crucified. And that was it. And yet the power that we know that God is at work, and the reason I did it was, one, I wanted you to have your faith in God, not in man. And the second aspect of it is the reason we know that I was effective, you believe, Right, like the fact that we're having this conversation is evidence that I came in simple ways in, in what you would have called weakness, and yet you believe the gospel. The Lord has transformed your heart, and so we're having this conversation. Paul has been followed up by some guys that, that kind of maybe rubbed um, that, that scratched that itch they had a little more for, for just great speakers, um, and so guys like Apollos had come in, and they were more eloquent, and so now people are going, yeah, yeah, Paul did this, and I love Apollos. Or man, I love Peter. Or I love whoever it is. And so Paul is, is saying, look, we have a significant, significant issue here. Because the church, right, is supposed to be this light in the middle of Corinth showing a different way. And he's been telling them so far in the first two chapters, you're continuing to live like the world. Like there, there's no difference between you and the world. There's no difference in the church and in those who are outside of the church. And he's like, but as, as believers, we are called to be distinct in the environment that we live in. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to a God who is able to save and to transform, whose wisdom is not of this world. So we're going to read, we're going to begin in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. So Paul continues this letter. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For, one said, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul. Servants, through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but is only through fire. All right, we're going we're gonna to stop there. So again, the, the church in Corinth is living and acting like the world, right? In regards to wisdom, right? That they love this kind of gaudy, um, verbose wisdom, and Paul's saying, I came in simplicity. Right? I told you a simple message that you would have actually thought was foolish because the Jews it looks like you lose because your Messiah was crucified. And to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, it just doesn't make sense that, that God would would send someone who seems to lose. Right? It, it's just a stumbling block. And he says, and you have wanted the teachers, right, who are most most like the culture. You believe you're spiritually wise, you think you're gifted. Right? You think that you have arrived and you are proud. Like, this is kind of the makeup of the church there. Just a bunch of independent folks who have, who have succeeded. Um, and then there's, there are some, some poor folks that are then the, the richer, those who have arrived, are kind of lording over. And he's like, You think you're something. You think you are. You feel superior even to me, Paul. And then look what he says. He begins with some very hard words here. He goes, In verse 1, but I, brothers, I can't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So, what he says is, you think you're like on some scale, like way above me. And I'm telling you, I couldn't even give you what all you needed. Even now, I can't write you what you need because you're babies, you're infants. You think you're wise and you're only wise in your own eyes. You're actually not wise at all. I'm still giving you milk instead of solid food. And so immediately, this would have been received as extraordinarily offensive, right? It's like going up to somebody in West Texas and saying, you think you're tough? You ain't tough, right? And then you start to list the reasons why they're not tough, right? You're going to step on some toes, right? And, and Paul is saying, you're not who you think you are. You're, you're not. In chapter 2, Paul has said, look, those who have the Spirit of God are, are able to understand the things of God. Like, we have the thoughts of God, we understand it. And those who aren't, don't. And so the wisdom that comes from God doesn't seem to make sense. And what he's given us now is really a third category. He's saying, look, you do have the Spirit. You are believers, okay? So you're able to understand, you just aren't. You're still living like the world is living. And so what he's doing is he's giving us kind of this, this intermediary stage of saying, you, you're not a non-believer, you have the Spirit, but you're not mature, because mature people obey. It's like, so you're an infant in Christ, you're a babe who's still trying to figure this out. The problem is, it's been four and a half years. Remember, Paul's been there for 18 months, it's now some three years removed from writing uh, since he's been there. It's his second letter. It's like, we, gotta, we have an issue here, you're not growing you're not maturing. You're still living like everyone else in the world is living, and it shows. And yet you think you're something. You think you are. You haven't been freed from the practices of the world. You're still acting like they are with wisdom. You're still looking at your leadership in the same way. You're, you have this infighting and these factions, and we're supposed to be one. Because Christ was crucified for all of us. So what he's saying is, look, you have victory over sin, Right? So if we look at Romans 6, 7, and 8, we see this. Like, as believers, as soon as Jesus saves you, you have victory over sin. The penalty of sin has been broken, and the power of sin has been broken by the cross. But until we, you have either passed away and you're with Christ in heaven, or until the day he returns, we live in a broken world still, in the presence of sin. And so even though we have victory over it, we still have to fight our sin and fight the temptation of the world. And it's why Paul will say in Romans 8, put to death your sin. Right, so we live in this, this unique place of who we are in Christ as we are adopted, secured sons and daughters living in power and victory over sin. And we are fellow travelers and strugglers who are at war with the sin that we live in and around, right, that lives among us and around us and in us. And so, we are at once innocent, and we have to fight, right? It's it's not one or the other. it's, It's both and. And so, Paul is saying, look, you are believers. You're just not living like it. You're not acting like it. He's not telling them, live like it, act like it, so that God will save you. He's saying, because God has saved you, you now have what you need to fight your sin, to live as one who knows the Lord, to put to death your sin. And so, Our salvation, we are justified. We're made right with God. One day we will be with him in heaven. We will be glorified. And right now we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. We are being refined. We are being chipped away at. And he's saying, get in the fight. Right? It's one of those questions that people ask all the time. Well, why does God, when he saves us, just not make us instantly holy and right and perfect and pure, right? And so in standing before God, we are. But in this world, we have to fight. We have to go to war against our sin, the things that have affected us, the things that we have, have become habits in our life. And we want those scales to fall off immediately. And yet, the Lord has said, I want you to walk in suffering, right? Because those are in the, the footsteps of Christ. And in that, right, you're, you're, we're, we're slipping and we're climbing and we're clawing our way, not towards salvation. We've already been saved, but towards looking more like Christ. And so, what Paul is wanting to tell them is, he goes, you're sitting there pompously, arrogantly, thinking that's who you are, and I'm saying, when I look at you, you look no different than anyone out there. Now, in your standing, you know Jesus, and then nothing's changed. And so, right, he's, these are not easy words, right? Can you imagine whoever's up there reading it going, the church in Corinth, right? And now he's looking at people that, that Paul has in mind personally. He's saying, look, I'm giving you milk, right? The milk is the gospel, right? The milk is, is the message that what we believe in and that we're saved. And it's not that the solid food isn't the gospel. The solid food is the gospel. But it's, it's having the maturity and the humility to see how much it affects us. So let me give you an example of this. How many of you, I'm guessing, maybe at a young age or at some point in your life, you say, man, I believe, I trusted Jesus. And then down the road for a while, you're walking with him, you're maturing, and it feels like you've just taken this step up onto a new plateau, onto this new mountaintop, and you're like, I couldn't have been saved. Now I'm saved, right? Because look how much I know now. Like now I understand, now I see Jesus, now he's beautiful. And then there was nothing for me there. And so he's saying, no, 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 like you were saved, right? But you're maturing, you're growing, you're seeing more clearly. It, you're beginning to eat real food, right? That message that seemed so simple, now you're, being, or you're beginning to chew on it and you're seeing how it affects your life and the humility that you need. I remember being like 16 years old and coming back from a trip, a mission trip to California and it was one of those moments where the Lord had really just spoken clearly and I was talking to um, some folks, and, and I made the comment, I finally see how worthless I actually am. And they were like, whoa, 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 Jeremy, you know, want to start talking about self-esteem. They thought I was going to go run off a cliff or something. And I'm like, no, 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 like, because I see how good Jesus is, right, like, that I thought I had something to be proud of and to be arrogant about because I was, like, I was me, right? And now I'm seeing there's nothing to really celebrate there, but there's so much in Christ, and Christ is changing me and making me look like Jesus, right? And it was like I'm going, he's, he's allowing me to like really begin to chew on the humility that I can say I'm not sufficient. I'm not enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not enough. And I don't say that with any sort of like depressive like self-esteem issue. I say it because Jesus is. He is, and he's transforming me more and more into the image of Christ. And what the world needs is more of Jesus, not more of Jeremy. And so I want to be faithful to him, and I want to I want to chew on this, and I want to be able to say so I can look at Carmen and say, "Here's where I failed," like "Here's where I haven't right." I can do that because the gospel says I'm already approved of, and so I can walk in obedience and I can walk in humility. And so what Paul is telling the church in Corinth is this: You're not doing any of those things. You get the bare minimum, the bare basics of Jesus has rescued you. And now you've just kind of left it there. And you're not wrestling with the fact that this actually has implications for your life. That it begins to change the way you think, and the way that you talk, and the way that you act, and the way that you respond, and the way that you view people, and your willingness not to have to be king, right? That you can be humble servants. Because you're approved of by the king. You belong to him, and you're not just a servant. You're a son or a daughter. He's like, I want you to chew on this, to believe this, to have this, to know this. Because again, remember in chapter 2, he told us that the mature, the ones who actually have wisdom, are those who are being obedient to this. So, he then goes on to this, and he says, and so to those that you hold up, because the issue is, is they're all dividing over their leaders and who they're following, which is their favorite minister. And he's like, so, I'm telling you, you're not, you're not as wise as you think you are. And so now, look at where he goes in verse 5. He begins to talk about those that they're, they're dividing over their leaders. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord has assigned to each. And he goes, you have held them up as some like like beacons, to then fight and say, I'm an Apollos guy, and Paul's a fool, right? Like, that's what's going on. He's like, what are these men? They are servants. They're servants, right? And in a worldly wisdom, we want to like hold it up and say, no, I'm an eloquent speaker, I'm I'm divine. Like, we want to like say, look at how good I am, and I'm better than you because I can speak better than you. And Paul writes, no, 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 no. All of us who are serving the church... It's what we're doing. We're serving the church. We are not lead. We are servants. And so he begins this, and he does it in four different ways. Look at, there's one in five, six, seven, and eight. Look at five. He goes, so what's Apollos? What is Paul? We are servants through whom you've believed, as the Lord assigned. He's saying "The, the task that we have have been given to us by God. So Paul was there, and Paul planted the church. He established the church and folks believed because God worked. And now Apollos is there, and he's preaching, and he's teaching, and people are growing, and he's saying because God is doing the work. That the tasks that we have weren't because I decided this is who I am. It's because God is directing. God is guiding. Look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, right? It's God who grows, And so the fact is, this morning, you could could put anybody up here preaching a sermon from Scripture, and no matter how eloquent or how simple it is, the only way you're going to believe is if the Spirit is so gracious as to open your heart to understand. Right? Like, we could give the best message ever, and you could sit there and nod along going, I hope we have fried chicken for lunch. Right? Like, it is God who grows. And so Paul is saying, look, we are serving you as God has assigned us to do. We're going to do our task. They're different in what we're doing, but it's only God who's going to be able to bring growth anyway. And so I think about this in regards to my kids, right? Could I manipulate them, convince them, tell them, don't you want to be with daddy in heaven and not in hell where it's like Can I do all that kind of stuff and make them go, like, Jesus, save me, right? Yes, I'm smarter than they are, right? I know more than they do, and I could emotionally and mentally and intellectually get them to a place where they're like, I will say whatever I need to say, right? And that's not belief. It's not. Paul's saying, it's God who gives belief. And so I want to be faithful to love and serve my children, And point them to Jesus, and I'm gonna beg the Lord to save them, right? To reveal Himself to them, because only He can do that. And so Paul is saying, I can't do that. Apollos can't do it. So why are you holding us up like we're king? It's God who saves, it's God who brings the growth. Look at verse 7. So neither He who plants, He's referring to Himself, or He who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. So he's not really, Paul does not have a self-esteem issue here when he says we're not anything, but he's saying in comparison to the king of glory, I'm nothing. Why are you looking at me? Why are you applauding me? Why are you saying, look how great Paul is, or look how great Apollos is? He says, look how great God is. God is all. And compared to him, yeah, we're nothing, right? Look at him. Now verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. He's saying, look, our tasks are different, but we're headed to the same intent, the same goal. We're one, we're unified. And each will receive his wages according to his work. What he's telling him is like, he's like, quite frankly, he's saying, I don't care what you think of me. Because it's gonna be God who pays me. It's gonna be God who merits it out. It's not, I'm not doing this so that you think, Paul you're awesome let's hate Apollos or Apollos you're awesome Paul's a moron he's saying we are on the same team headed in the same direction wanting you to know and love and treasure the king and then God is going to merit out the reward in our faithfulness not you your judgment of us does not matter because God is in control of this it's God's assessment that I care about not yours And so what he's telling them is this, like, as as Paul and Apollos are faithful, they don't become, like, God doesn't go, man, stop, right? Like, I'm indebted to y'all now. Y'all have done such a good job. It's like, no, 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 we are servants. And when we accomplish a task, the master gives us an additional one. Right? Because he's in control, and we're not. And so what Paul is doing is he's just kind of like popping this bubble in the ego of going, right? I mean, I, I would imagine they might be even seated around like, we're Apollos' guys, right? And Paul's guys are over here going. We're Paul's guys, and you know Peter's got a little group back here, and these the, the the ones that are unclaimed yet, and so everyone's like, you know, we gotta get them over here on our team. It's like, what are y'all doing? It's Jesus. Right? It, it, it's Jesus. Because look, he says, verse 9, remember to whom you belong. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Well, he's not saying that they're on par with God. He's saying, like, we together are working for God. And you're God's field, this metaphor. You're his building. We belong to the king. We belong to him. It's not ours. And so if you've ever, like, let, like, let someone house it. Or take care of an animal or, or babysit, right? If they've ever taken care of something for you, right? A responsible person is looking for someone who, like, they would care if they messed it up, right? That they, that, that they have enough respect for you that they want to treat it right. Paul is saying, look, God has put this task in our hands to handle and to do. And so we want to hold it tightly and we want to do it well, but it's not ours. It's his. It belongs to him. And so we're trying to be faithful with it because we gotta give it back. And we wanna give it back where it's still good. And it still looks like what it was and what it's supposed to be. Because it's, it belongs to God. And so it's a really good reminder for myself. Redeemer isn't mine. It's not. Like I am merely a servant that the Lord is using for his church here for a, for a time period. Right, because I mean, obviously, our hope is that Redeemer exists beyond anyone in this room still being here right like that's like that 's the vision right it 's not this meets our needs now it 's that this meets right what the Lord, what the King is doing in Pampa and in the panhandle now and on right that it 's that it 's beyond us, that it 's not ours, and so he begins then to switch metaphors and he goes from this idea of like common farm hands into verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, I'm like a skilled master builder, and I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. So he's like, look, I came in, I laid the foundation, I planted the church, and I'm not there anymore. Someone else is continuing to construct it beyond me. And so he begins to talk about architecture and about buildings. And he says, but the foundation is Jesus. Jesus. The foundation is Jesus and Jesus alone, and if there's anything else, then it's wrong. And the fact is, though, is you can have a strong foundation and then build a really crappy building on top of it, right? And so he's like, both of them matter. The foundation has to be good, and then, but the structure that's built on it matters as well. It's one of the reasons here we desire to be so simple, right? We don't want to get caught up in like this flashy thing where that you could come and sit for six or seven weeks and go man I've had an awesome time man those people are awesome how is, what has is Jesus said to you hadn't thought about that right like we want it to be stripped down enough that you come in and either the Lord is faithful to meet with us and reveal himself this morning and you walk away going man the Lord was there or you very clearly go the Lord wasn't there Right? We don't want to try to like, like, you know, don't pay attention to what's going on over here, you know. Like, don't look behind the curtain. Like, we want it to be clear that the Lord is what this is about, that the foundation and the building is built on that. Because it is possible to build something called a church that is not a church at all. That is built on other foundations and has other structures. Right? There are folks, right, Like they're like, man, come in. It will be the best week ever. And they say that, right, every week because we're going to give you an iPad or we're going to give you gift cards or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. Like, come in, come in, come in, right? And so we draw a crowd, and then we go, that's success. Look how much God is blessing us because look at all the people. And people are going, so tell me what you're learning about Jesus. I'm not, Right? Paul's saying, look, we want to judge success by the fact that we are maturing and growing in Christ, not in the fact that we can draw a crowd, not in the fact that we can gain a lot of notoriety, not in the fact that the world would look at us and applaud. It's like, that's not the point. That's not the goal. The Lord was, was so kind to me the very first Sunday we ever met, right? Because we were, we were walking into... Matt and Collins' home, and there was going to be about 17 of us there, and like Redeemer was a a thing we hoped, you know, a little more than a twinkle in our eyes, like we were actually going to meet, and as I'm walking in that morning, like we literally were getting there early to push couches out of the way, right, because like we're meeting in a living room, and we don't know who's coming, and I remember walking on their driveway, and like right before I got to the door, almost having a panic attack of like, oh my word, we're fixing to do church in a house. Ain't nothing churchy about this. What, like, like, we're, like what are we doing? Like I, and so my, here was my thought, let's throw some church on it. And so I'm running through my head real quick of like, this is the moment I've been praying for, hoping for, waiting for, and now all of a sudden I'm like panicking of like, it's not enough. Let's throw something on it to at least cover it up and make it look like it's church. And the, the Spirit, as clearly as probably two or three times in my life said, I have you exactly where I want you. I either show up this morning or you're a fool. And I'm like, Phew. okay. And I remember walking in, and there wasn't much churchy about it. And the Spirit showed up. And the Spirit has continued to. And here's the thing got nothing to do with me. But it is the faithfulness and the kindness of God to meet with us. And so what we need is not a place called Redeemer. What we need is not me preaching to you. What we need is the Spirit of God maturing us, pointing us to the King, growing us to look distinct from the world, not so that we can look at the world and laugh, but to say, there's a better way, and a God who actually meets us and actually transforms us, and He is faithful to do it, right? There is hope in that, in that it's the foundation is Christ and Christ alone. We want there to be no smoke screens at all because what you win them with is what you have to use to keep, keep them there. And so if we win you with Christ, then all we need is Christ to keep you. The message, church, would we not, be, would we not forget this this morning? The message is beautiful, Right, It really is. It's, it, it's, it's simple, and it's profound, and it's beautiful. that The, the God of the universe created man to know him, right? like to walk with him. Like We are a created being, and the creator said, I'm creating you to know me and to see how beautiful and how glorious I am, and you get to know me, and I'm going to know you, and we're going to do it forever. And then we screw it up. Our first mom and dad screwed it up. And before we get too upset with them, we screw it up. And the Lord didn't say, to hell with us, quite literally, right? But in the fullness of time, faithful God sent His Son to to show us the life we were supposed to have lived in, in just absolute dependence and trust, right? Compassion, love, grace, mercy, knowing the Father, and then was crushed in our place due to our guilt. But because he was innocent and holy and perfect and right, he walked out of that grave, right, alive, and is alive today. And so we have not only a a perfect king, we have a crucified king, we have a living king, a resurrected king, who then says, I'm going to take my spirit and put it in you so that you have what you need to live a distinct life in a world that is full and broken by sin until the day that you either die and come to me or that I come for you. And so that's, that's the age we live in right now. That's the age that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This beautiful, simple message that he is enough and that he's bringing us back into the family as sons and daughters, that he loves us, that he likes us, that he has rescued us. We can trust it. It is enough. We don't have to jazz it up. We don't have to sell it. We don't have to bait and switch. It's simply enough, and we trust that God will rescue, that he will do it, and we treasure him because of it. And so Paul is going to finish this section saying, look, we're not saved by our works, but our works are going to be judged one day. Look at what he says. In the end of verse 10, he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, he's talking about like good and right and holy things, versus wood, hay, and straw, which are false things, each one's work will become shown, manifest, for the day. It means like judgment day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work you have done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward, and if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as only as through fire. And so the picture here is just someone running out of a burning building, right? And like they're smoking a little bit, like a wisp of smoke coming off, clothes are singed, and the house is like gone. And you're like, whew, I made it, huh, right? And you're going, everything I did was for naught." I believed and I have nothing to show for it other than my salvation, which is significant. He says, or, or we can spend our life building something that's last because it's built on the foundation of Christ and because He reveals. And so here's the thing this isn't just for preachers, this is for parents, for Sunday school teachers, for gospel community leaders, for believers, period. As you teach and point to Jesus, there will be a day where you're going to walk through a fire, and you're going to come out the other side, and whatever you have that has meant meant something that was motivated by Christ, that was built on Christ, you're going to still have it, and you're going to be able to lay it down at the feet of Jesus and say, I treasured you, look. And some of us are going to walk through and go, I got nothing other than my burned, singed self that barely got through the fire, because what I lived for was for me. And, I, and, it, and what I built, I said it was for Jesus, but it really wasn't. It was for me. You can fool us. We don't know each other's hearts and intents like that. There will be a day where it will be revealed of what motivated us, what were we building for, and why were we building, and we will all face it. Here's the hope. Here's the good news. None of us are going to be perfect in it, right? we're all going to have areas where we were short, all have areas where we were not motivated well, all have areas where our belief should have been turned just a little bit, okay? So there's going to be some stuff burned up for each of us. Nobody gets through perfectly, but the hope would be that we would have something to give back to the king. So, man, we we did it for you. And so this morning, if you're doing it for us, stop, because it's going to be revealed, right? We do it for the king whom we treasure. What Paul is doing here, and this is where we're going to finish, is Paul is removing their idols, right? He's just taking them away, going, that's not enough. Paul's not enough. Apollos isn't enough. Your motivation matters. It matters. And then he replaces it with Jesus, and he says, he's enough. So know him, love him, treasure him. Be motivated by a day where God is going to pay out based on your reward. So he says, I don't need your judgment, God's going to do it himself. So this morning, I want us to remind ourselves that our motives and our intent matters. The reason you read Scripture matters. The reason you walked in that door this morning matters. The reason you show hospitality, kindness, right? Is it for your own kingdom, reputation, building that you then cover with this, like, cloak of Jesus so that people call you humble and good? or is it because you treasure the king and so you're being obedient to him and your motives are to honor and to please and to be distinct for him here's the thing we may or may not be able to tell the difference but there will be a day where it will be revealed what was real what was right, what was holy and what was motivated by a love for God versus what was motivated by a love for you and both can be called Christian behavior in this world But only one actually is. Church, we're going to fade away. Churches fade away. The capital C church does not. It is moving forward for all eternity until the day the Lord comes for us, and we will treasure Him forever. Right. So Paul is setting us up for the rest of this book to say, so let's let's discern what our intents are and what our thoughts are and what our motives are, and so he's going to begin to work through several behaviors through the rest of this letter to help us know what it would look like to be a believer living in a world that is like racked with sin, and yet we want to be distinct, okay? So, I I love that we just kind of get to put a comma on these and keep going. So, let me pray for us, and we'll uh, have the band come back up.